I would really feel that we've created a diverse space if we were really to have trans persons either as attendees or speakers at Panhasgi conferences. Um, and I think that that, that deliberation is, is completely missing. So welcome to Outliers. Uh, like I keep saying, this is a podcast with outliers and uh, most of them are good outliers for good reasons. And I'm really happy and excited to have Zena Bava uh, with us today. She uh, runs HasGeek and uh, HasGeek, for those of you who are not aware, uh, is a very strong rooted community of technologists uh, and, and, and data scientists. Uh, uh, since what I mean it's been seven years now and I have uh, like I, I watched uh, what Zainab and Haskeek uh, do over the years uh, from the outside uh, across my different assignments and I always was fascinated uh, when when you go out and hear people talk about how they discovered a co-founder or how they you know heard a big idea at one of those conferences it, it was really fascinating and then finally I got to meet Zainab and, uh, of course, Kiran. And uh, that's when I started uh, learning more about what they do and how they do. And uh, I thought uh, there are some deep lessons in uh, building a community and engaging uh, with, you know, keeping them engaged. Uh, and also a bit of, uh, you know, uh, some perspective on, on women in tech uh, kind of a thing. So, so welcome Zainab uh, to this podcast. <laughs> to just uh, kick this off, uh, Zainab, uh, what, are, what are the battles that you really <laughs> fight on a daily basis, quarterly basis or annual basis as the CEO of HasGeek? What keeps you really busy? So uh, the way HasGeek is structured, um, or at least one part of um, HasGeek is structured, is that um, the product that we offer to people are our conferences and the ancillary events around our conferences uh, which could be meetups, workshops, um, uh, hack nights and whatnot. Uh, now, um, you know, given that uh, all of these require to produce content, uh, the most of my time in HasGeek is really in uh, producing this content. Um, and producing this content requires uh, not just me sort of writing it up or speaking about it, but essentially um, finding the right set of people who can deliver uh, this kind of content um, and I suppose the other challenge also with content is how do you sniff what is uh, what is uh, upcoming and also what is required uh, because what is upcoming is not necessarily always required um, uh, because one also deals with different sets of people uh, you deal with people who are just at the start of their careers or they've just got or they've switched careers and they're looking for something uh, which is not necessarily cutting edge at the same time there's a fair set of people who are looking for um, fairly advanced uh, um, ideas or they want to understand fairly complex concepts um, and then uh, we obviously have a situation where uh, some of our conferences are curated by individuals who are pretty much cutting edge themselves um, and so how do you kind of find that balance and how do you uh, how do you cater to different requirements and at the same time also talk about um, uh, also talk about trends that are either ahead of their times or just about upcoming 
um and i think sometimes this balance happens through serendipity sometimes it's a balance that you have to create and i think uh, that that is uh, that is that is what keeps me most busy um the other thing also with building a community is uh, is always being able to kind of um, you know watch out for those who are showing a sense of belongingness and i think uh, one of the things that is very like which is which is not so obvious and yet so obvious is that a community is built by years of effort because you can't just say i will do i will do a, a particular uh, activity for 9 months and then expect the community to take over because that never happens uh, uh, and uh, you know i mean it's a pretty long drawn process uh, and at various stages you have various things happening um and uh, at various stages depending on how uh you know serendipity plays and how you structure things um there are people who start showing some sense of belongingness in one form or another so uh let's take two examples from hasgeek itself uh one where you find that after most of our conferences are in their 6 and 7 years um except for the new properties that we launched this year um in the in this you know in the period when i think when we got like when we became 5 plus we had individuals who would reach out to us personally saying i'd like to recommend a speaker i'd like to mm-hmm. recommend a topic and uh, i have sort of mentioned this at various points saying that it's very interesting now that you know at least some people are starting to show ownership of the very conferences that we that we were creating which means that uh you know at some point there is a scope that we can become a facilitator um and expect you know some involvement from those who feel that sense of belongingness by virtue of participating so um so we had years in the fifth elephant for instance where we had participants actually take the initiative to say i recommend the speaker and i will work with you to prepare the speaker to uh to help the speaker understand you know what is required for him or her to speak in your conference and things like that and i think it's very heartening to see that um the other that we are noticing in the last couple of years have been participants who come and say well we attended your conferences now we want to know what happens behind the scenes so we will volunteer for your conferences uh, okay. and that's another set of uh, i mean that's another uh, set of people uh, or that's a, yeah that's another sort of segment of people um <clears throat> who are taking a sense of ownership and then over a period of time we find in our own experience of the last 7 years that these very volunteers then convert to either becoming employees or they become um you know important uh, aspects of the conference and run critical pieces like wifi or video and things like that so um but these are these are very i mean if one were to sort of count um uh, the numbers of such people it would be a handful and yet i mean i would take it as an indicator of some level of success uh, because um, uh, i think it kind of shows some level of uh, i mean it it kind of shows some level of ownership and belongingness and uh, which is not something that we have i mean that you know we have both like you know fostered as well as not necessarily fostered intentionally so uh, i think uh, for me one of the uh, biggest influencers in my life uh, has been uh, this japanese farmer masanobu fukuoka uh who wrote this um uh book on um, uh, partic- uh, on this technique of farming called natural farming and uh, the the philosophy of natural farming is do nothing and uh, to do nothing you have to do a lot of things um so i mean fukuoka talks about how in order to um in order to grow potatoes on his farm he has to watch out for weeds 
and yet to watch out for those weeds he also has to watch out how he has to deviate because he also needs to keep some of those weeds in order to have that ecosystem of being able to uh, ward off pests and it is a lot of hard work but then it also means that as you do that hard work you have to be able to kind of build that sense of uh, of uh, sort of discernment that um, you have to step off you have to let certain forces play and you have to intervene only to the extent of not damaging that interplay happening and uh, that is uh, i mean and i feel like in a certain sense like you know doing these conferences is this do nothing philosophy uh, which is you have to do a lot of things um, and make yourself insignificant enough to say that there are forces out there which are at play and what you are simply doing is to kind of you know um, helping or facilitating certain things to come together hmm. so and i think that 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 really keeps you very busy because to get those things to come together you have to constantly ask yourself as a personality check also that i have to step away uh, i have to step away here i have to intervene here i have to i have to make a statement here i have to not make a statement here that's very interesting uh, I, i think it's also about being i mean having a, i mean being dispassionate about uh, some things at, at yeah, the same so time yeah so i feel like it's been very interesting that i have had some of these influences in my life including vipassana which is about being passionate and yet being dispassionate which is that you do the self surgery on yourself by observing um, your sensations as they arise and pass and at the same time um, what you have to do is just become that observer of your own self um, uh, which is both a passionate and a dispassionate act or rather it's both an attached and detached act so i have a couple of uh, follow up questions but before that so so it's one thing to seed this community and and uh, very well identified you said there will be a bunch of people who would come out and you know show sense of ownership and things like that uh, how how do you keep the community engaged uh, and how how do you know what keeps them engaged and what has been experience on that what are the lessons so i think uh, uh, in our experience uh, the way to keep the community engaged is by giving them relevant content um, and uh, the relevant content uh, comes from the practitioners themselves uh, so the curators of the conference tend to be practitioners themselves uh, uh the speakers of the conference are practitioners themselves uh the people we are talking to are practitioners themselves and um uh the sort of the way the cycle works is you constantly have to have conversations with these different sets of people um i think uh, i mean it's interesting that you asked me this question because that's one of the things i was telling somebody in my team about i come from a background of ethnography um and for those who do not know about ethnography it's a it's a it's a it's a certain practice within the discipline of anthropology where all you do is like be in your field and just constantly like you know talk to people smell the smells uh, watch the sights uh, hear whatever uh, you know is audible for you and uh, essentially like you know make sense of it um, and uh, i think the way we are positioned in india is that unfortunately tech journalism is completely non existent um, what passes off as tech journalism unfortunately is about uh, uh, who got what uh, funding and uh, you know what might be the next big uh, trend which might eventually end up becoming a bubble and so the only uh, i mean the uh, i mean it's unfortunate that we can only look to the west or, or rather you know to a, a very uh, specific uh, geography of the west where uh, you will be able to kind of get insights in terms of what's happening so given that there is a complete lack of um information about what's happening in technology 
in India, in Bangalore, in other parts of the country, all you have to do is to just talk to the very people who are out there and understand what's going on. And so the way to kind of build this community is is to talk in order to be able to generate content. So talk to people, understand where, you know, what's happening, uh, why, you know, what is emerging as certain technology, what is, you know, sort of being touted as technology, which may or may not necessarily solve any problem at all. Um, uh, so uh, I think the way we have, or rather the way I have kind of like uh, uh, worked around seeding these communities is by just talking to people and saying, okay, you know what, this seems interesting, that seems interesting. And of course, like I said, the challenge is that many a times the people we work with uh, to curate our own conferences tend to be very much on the cutting edge. Yeah. And so um, the ideas that they come with are not necessarily um, the ideas that uh, a community identifies with or uh, or the ideas that a community believes are important. Um, but sometimes you have to take that risk. You have to hedge your bets and say it's important. I mean, so to, let's take an example where in 2016 we produced an edition of our infrastructure conference, RootConf, um, and the theme was how do you design systems for failure? Uh, the fact that you will have, you know, in spite of everything being foolproof, there will be an occasion where something will go down. Um, I mean, and that's not just a security uh, going, it's not just a security lapse that causes the go down, but I mean, uh, an example is if you're a food, uh, if you're a food app and you know that uh, on a particular day in the week, you will be hit by a number of orders or at a particular time, at a particular day in the week, you'll be hit by a number of orders and your systems may or may not be able to handle that massive onslaught. Um, so simple example is when rains happen, uh, many people might decide that we want to order food. Now, can your system handle that massive onslaught? We um, uh, alone servicing. Um, and so, you know, system may go down at that time. And now you can only fix things once you know something has happened but how can you preempt and how can you say if something goes down then what backups do you build for your system to kick in if you know the core goes down and so when we produced the conference around uh, around the theme uh, that was a year when we literally saw a turnout of about 350 people and uh, we were wondering like what happened to a conference with 550 people that suddenly has only 350 people and we realized that very few people actually understood you know what we were trying to say and why what we were trying to say was very critical and i think the impact we could only see in the subsequent years where people said oh you know what you spoke about this last year and now i identify with it and i think that it was a tremendous insight um and so there are times when you take those kind of risks as well uh, i'm not sure if i've answered your question no, you fully did. but uh, i think uh, unfortunately unfortunately the way we are positioned in uh, in bangalore and in india the only way to understand the industry is uh, either by being there hands-on or by being able to kind of have a conversation with people who are hands-on out there who can tell you what's really happening. And uh, also, uh, like from what I have seen from outside about Hasmeek, and I mean, how, how do you balance your own convictions with what you know so-called nation wants or community wants mm. so are, are there those dilemmas too uh, you know when when as an individual you have certain belief systems mm. and convictions but the community which is growing may have so how do you balance uh, what community wants with what you may mm. believe in or you may not believe i mean are there such dilemmas that you deal with i'm just trying to think it's an interesting question uh, i'm wondering whether we've had a situation like that i think uh, 
let's just take a very simple example and that's something that's been coming up in the last couple of days is uh, you know there is a there is this great belief and conviction that we should segregate waste and mm-hmm. now that we run a food quarter our conferences there is a heck of a lot of collateral that gets distributed at the conference in terms of paper and uh, uh, you know there's flex that's printed and whatnot i mean from the you know, we constantly get this feedback saying, oh, we should be segregating this waste. And we've actually taken that feedback pretty seriously. And, you know, this year, in fact, we commissioned Hasiru Dalla to even seg- segregate the waste that was generated at the event. And yet, it's not obvious to people because people, I mean, either don't know or they don't care or they care and it's not obvious to them that somebody is segregating the waste that has been just, you know, dumped mindlessly elsewhere. Now, um, you know, one... Uh, one of the things I was discussing yesterday with both my colleagues and with some uh, with with a speaker who pointed this out was I said well then maybe we should just educate the audience at the start and tell them that this is what constitutes wet waste dry waste this is how you segregate when something is um, when there is food in in aluminium uh, foil and you know whether it constitutes as wet or dry and essentially educate the audience and say there is a particular period in the day when all of us will segregate waste now I'm sure that. That kind of a conviction is uh, is not going to be met with very easily because there will be this whole thing of how do I put my hands in garbage, uh, how do I do this? And I think uh, I mean I, I see I see potential for a conflict, but I suppose that uh, the only way to kind of do this is by actually doing it. Um, it's difficult. I mean I clearly remember that you know while I was kind of like you know suggesting this idea, I remember almost like a decade and a half ago when I was very actively involved in the whole interfaith dialogue movement, there was this time when um, we were sitting in uh, uh, in Haryana, um, uh, there was a group of 30-40 uh, of us from across the world who were having this, uh, you know, having these deliberations around how do you kind of like, you know, understand difference, how do you appreciate difference in, in faiths and communities and then one of the suggestions that came up was we need to close the session by washing each other's feet and suddenly everybody was like how do you do that I mean like and the suggestion came interestingly from this uh, pastor from Washington um, very uh, young and charismatic person very uh, very strong leader and he said well you know if Jesus could wash the feet of his own disciples and lead the way by doing it why can't we wash each other's feet and use this opportunity to uh, even cleans our own self by saying that you know maybe I had this prejudice against this person in this own meeting, and that I will clean this person's feet, and you know that way I will be able to overcome my own bias. And I remember, like, in spite of all the resistance, I mean, we all ended up doing it, and it was, I think, probably the most emotional moment uh, in my in my life uh, because I noticed like all of us were to tears as we were washing, and it was a very automatic process of like you know coming out and saying. I'm sorry that despite you know having this interfaith dialogue here, I I couldn't really you know get past being able to like you know get past my bias against you because you belong to a different uh, religion or because I perceived you in a different way. Uh, I mean, and I think that you know these powerful experiences are what kind of bring a community together because uh, I think if you also look at Scott Peck's work uh, in um, uh, this very nice book that he's written, which is probably the lesser known book, which is uh, the Different Drum. I think Peck himself talks about how um, you know there are these stages of community. You find people come together initially, and there's this great sense of euphoria because you just want to um, you know you you feel like this is marvelous. Like I had the sense of belonging, and you know it's 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 kind of this you know sort of very infectious uh, excitement. 
but then um, you know as you kind of progress into you know middle stages um, and these middle stages would vary uh, there's a sudden sense of like resentment and not wanting to talk to each other and you know all kinds of negative feelings that sort of start coming up and then there is this phase of difficulty which is how do you work through all these negativities because um, you know in spite of the negativities being there it's not like there is no sense of belonging it's about how do you now actually create a more genuine sense of belonging by being able to come out and say i have this difference of opinion i do not agree with this um, i do not uh, and you know creating that environment where people can sort of like you know express those differences of opinions differences in convictions and belief and i think once you get past that period of difficulty is then when you actually become a resilient community and obviously then the resilience is tested because you of you you will have phases of negativity you will have phases and what not and i think uh, uh, i believe that this is actually a very good uh, understanding of how things work and uh, therefore you know i mean how do you both intervene and not intervene when there are these kind of phases think about doing yeah. nothing and, yeah <laughs> uh the other thing i noticed and always so uh you you also as an organization have strong uh, convictions and beliefs on larger issues in the ecosystem i mean be it aadhar or you know so called india stack mm-hmm. and and you you folks stand for open systems and you know you, i mean you, you prophecies around uh, you know mm-hmm. ensuring that things are open and transparent and things like that what do you make of uh, those battles overall and in past few months mm. <laughs> we have seen very intense uh, mm. debates on these things and how, what do i mean what does it mean for you to take stand on mm. those things mm. what does it mean for what you do mm. in terms of business mm. uh, of building has mm. so uh, i think uh, it's interesting that you mention this uh, because uh, you know within the organization itself we have a fair set of people who are pro aadhar and a fair set of people who are skeptical about the promises that aadhar is making sure. and unfortunately that comes across as anti aadhar mm-hmm. um so i i mean i mean in my own editorial team i have a colleague who very strongly believes that this is a good system to have and i think uh, you need to have those differences of opinion uh, and at the end of the day it's really about being able to say that is there space to express disagreement and i think unfortunately the way things have unfolded in the last few months has been that there is no space for disagreement you either agree with us or you are on the other side and i think that is not healthy uh, in fact i do remember that uh, you know when uh, when dj patel had come down um, uh, and we were having this interactions with him at at various places i think one of the things that he pointed out very rightly was to say that you know when you are going to implement large scale systems you need all the stakeholders to come together both from inside the government and from outside and be able to talk openly about you know where they see the problems and challenges lie and unfortunately that's not necessarily happening uh, there is just been i mean there has just been this you know massive bypass for whatever reasons i mean for reasons of expediency or for reasons of uh, uh, you know uh, you know getting things done and uh, uh, yeah in that sense i mean the question also for us is that uh, you know how much do our own personal beliefs then influence the the system we are creating or the platform we are creating and the community and i think that is a that's an interesting cross check that we have to constantly keep doing and uh, you know again i think it's been very interesting uh, both in terms of serendipity and in terms of uh, of uh, of 
you know kind of like uh, of constructing a, a platform i mean let's take the example of what happened at the payments conference this year we launched 50p this year mm-hmm. it was intended to be a partnership with stakeholders including um, uh, uh, ispirit last year and uh, last i mean last year when upi was launched there was this um, there was there was a sense of euphoria about you know uh, is upi going to become mainstream and i think uh, at that point in time the question was that you know i mean it's not yet mainstream what kind of bets can you hedge on it but to do a upi conference per se um, uh, with the very creators of it is a violation of neutrality and that is something that we could not uh, that we could not uh, uh, you know go with because that goes against the fundamental principles on the basis of which we built this organization and uh, the trust that we built with the community but interestingly i mean um, you know uh nine months down the line uh when we did the conference it was interesting the first four to five talks were all about upi and it was not because we intended to be it was because you know various sets of people came and said we're willing to hedge our bets now on this because of various reasons there's demonetization happened there is this platform that the government has created and that has the po- the possibility of going further and um, none of this was orchestrated by us it all came from the community the the good and the bad and i think that's also one of the feedback that i've been uh, that i've kind of given to the uidi people whenever i've had an interaction with them saying that um can you listen to what the community is saying because clearly you can't just build a system entirely on your own and then thrust it upon people but if you were to build a system in consultation with the people who care about it um like i think one of the things that shrikant lakshmanan had pointed out back then was can we have a system of open reporting of bugs in upi can people from the community just report bugs instead of it being a closed system where nobody has access to anything and i suppose that something as simple as this is unfortunately very hard to implement uh, either because there's a vested interest or because there's i think most of the times it's because there's a f- sense of fear that if we open up um you know are we going to open ourselves up to vulnerabilities uh, are we going to be judged that we didn't build a robust system but then who builds a robust system in the first instance uh, systems are built uh, robustness is a is a is a outcome of a constant process of feedback and unfortunately that feedback is what is missing so um i think the the way uh, i mean the way we've kind of tried to position some of these issues is by saying that um the platform is available for people to um to debate some of these issues sometimes we will deliberately seed these issues like i mean the privacy debate that we introduced at uh, at 50p because it's a it's a genuine issue right that with digital payments now there yeah. is a massive amount of data that the you're getting from the customer yes. uh, and uh, as a company that's holding the data also there is a there are both risks and responsibilities and uh, you know what is in your best interest as an organization uh, what makes both economic sense as well as uh, makes sense from uh, uh, you know a pragmatic point of view and often uh, pragmatism is not necessarily at, con- at conflict with philosophy um, i mean and let's i mean forget about privacy i mean i was interestingly having a discussion with somebody about content management systems the other day and he said you know open source is great but can you understand that when it comes to open source uh, technology and content management systems it is the large organizations can that can handle it and why can they handle it because open source also is a huge code overhead and if there's code overhead it's only the large enterprises with that amount of manpower that can actually deal with that overhead versus a small organization who might want to take a, a closed system because that overhead is not there and that there are other goals to be met so 
I mean, the reason I've kind of brought these two uh, examples together is to talk about, I mean, is to exactly um, illustrate the fact that uh, philosophy and pragmatism don't need to be at conflict with each other. They can, in fact, very much, uh, uh, you know, kind of coexist if one were to just take a deeper look at either history or context. And I think, unfortunately, that is what is missing in a lot of these debates today. It's a very interesting point you make because we have that internal I mean, debates ourselves and we also believe that pragmatism and the philosophy can co I mean you can have that uh, just another thing is it is it really tough to practice this uh, at the same time that you know when being an entrepreneur trying to build an organization uh, sustainable uh, uh, you know earn, earn money uh, for funding the growth and, and the cost how how's that experience yeah so i think uh, i mean initially a lot i mean a lot of these principles have really come from kiran because um, uh, you know this this insistence that there has to be openness that yeah. either you have to talk about open source um, uh, or you have to be able to give away a very very pr uh, practical insight and take away to the audience um, and uh, this insistence that we will not share participant database with a sponsor which uh, you know at the time in 2010 it almost seemed like are you stupid because if you do not give this uh, database why should we sponsor in the first place and i think it was really hard in the first couple of years because uh, uh, you know we would try to reach out to a lot of large organizations and say why don't you come out and speak and they would be like no we can't speak here because we have a lot of ip protection or uh, you know we are bound by restrictions from within the company uh, there would be companies who wouldn't understand like how you can have you know how can you kind of like you know generate data i mean how can you collect participant data without necessarily being given a database and i think uh, you know initially it was really really hard to um, to overcome this but i i suspect i mean we we did we did have two things going for us one was that there was a sense of goodwill um, as a result of which uh, um, you know we did have uh, we did get support from various people in the first couple of years and then uh, at the same time, just being able to kind of say, no, we do stick to these principles, um, even if it was very difficult, uh, was also uh, was also something that kind of helped us to just sort of, you know, stand uh, very clear that we will not compromise on these things. And I think it's worked out for us that we've kind of like, you know, stuck to certain ground principles and said, no, we will build this organization on these grounds. Um, else, you know, um, and while initially it did seem like I mean, are we going against our own selves? I think, uh, in retrospect, it does seem it does seem like it was a good decision to kind of just be firm to what you believed in. Um, the fact that we do not negotiate on our price, that we put out our prices very upfront, uh, that there is no discount beyond a certain point. Um, I think, uh, as much as we still have to do the pushback, uh, the amount of pushback that we've done in the initial years is far far greater than what we kind of do Good. right now. I, and I think there's acceptance um, and. Uh, uh, I, you know, while I say this, I think there is also, I mean, it's a, it's a good learning in the, in a sort of, a, for, a, for a collective that, uh, you know, cultural change doesn't come so easily. And if, and communities are about cultures, um, you can't say that I will seed something and then go away. You have to practice your own culture for the culture to be instituted. And uh, the institutionalization only happens when there is this constant, like, you know, um, practice of the culture that you believe in. And I mean, this is true for communities, both you know, among human beings as well as uh, if you were to even look at like bioorganisms. I mean, how does uh, kefir grow? It grows because there is this culture of feeding the milk grains with this fresh milk, 
and uh, <coughs> incidentally like you know this is culture that you literally pass on from one person to another it's only now that it's a fad that you buy it in the market but um, but you know i mean uh, i think uh, there's a great deal to be learnt about how ecosystems beyond humans uh, survive uh, and uh, you know the kind of cultural processes that play over there because i think a lot of that can be transmitted to uh, to human interplay and uh, the other thing i just wanted to check with you is is the the stuff that you do at hasgeek have, have been primarily in and around bangalore yeah is there I any mean, particular reason because i'm sure there are people interested in other yeah so uh, i think uh, uh, i mean this kind of brings us to the infrastructure question um we did a bunch of uh, you know conferences per se in other cities and uh, one of the things that we kind of realized was and at that time we were still like you know i mean we were still kind of uh, small in the sense that um we didn't necessarily i mean we 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 were still doing a lot of things in house and the question was you know how do you transport all this material from one place to another and you know kind of run a full fledged conference in another city um i think uh, over the years there was also this line of thinking saying that since there's a lot happening in bangalore can we motivate people from the outside to come to bangalore and um, i think this ecosystem is also changing right now and so we do a bunch of smaller uh, events in other cities and we are trying to figure out how do we kind of like you know do more of what we do in bangalore outside um and uh, it's a challenge because um, there are fundamental pieces of infrastructure missing um either it's not necessarily a very vibrant ecosystem uh, or it's a dormant ecosystem that requires to be made vibrant and so you know the infrastructure there required is how do you seed speakers how do you train people to speak how do you uh, get people to come out how do you get them to kind of like you know learn what it is to sort of engage as a community um sometimes it's literally physical infrastructure like literally carrying all your cam your video equipment from one place to another is is extremely hard so then do you then build uh, video infrastructure in another city um and then who maintains it um so i mean it's a it's a bit like the flipkart challenge where they when they initially started out they realized that the only way to kind of like grow is to build their own courier company <laughs> and then uh, you know i mean uh, while like now you know there is various criticisms of that policy uh, of of that sort of move yeah. uh, you know initially it made a lot of sense because that infrastructure never existed and you didn't need that certainty in order to be able to deliver in a certain way um and uh, i think it's a, it's a similar challenge i mean yesterday for instance i was talking to somebody and we were talking about how there is so much of you know data that's floating around uh, which can give you clear insights in terms of you know where certain kind of interventions are required in the city in terms of planning and infrastructure um and yet you know there is no collective mindset there is just the individual mindset but i think coming back to your question there are certain piece of infrastructure that were missing in the initial years that kind of like you know also prevented us and then as an organization um we also had to kind of you know make decisions and as an organization that's completely sort of supported by its own um, revenues it was also a question of like you know when you move out you know how do you move out how does that impact your revenue flow because it's not like you will move to another city and then from tomorrow onwards your cash flow will start getting generated i mean we recognize that with our own conferences that by running more conferences doesn't mean you generate more cash flow in fact you lose a lot of money uh, so uh, so i suppose that you know these have been some of the some of the challenges uh, there have been organizations that we know uh, who are in the space of community not necessarily tech who made a conscious choice and said we will only stay put in bangalore yeah. uh, and then you have companies like uber and ola who just have to grow in other cities so i suppose yeah there are there are layers of challenges but um, uh, i think it's also interesting to see how the ecosystem is developing and um, i suppose uh, one part of that lacuna can really be filled by 
good tech journalism if there were really good tech journalism mm-hmm. in india mm-hmm. that you know what is really happening in other parts of the country which are not necessarily in the news uh, like i met somebody from jaipur um, in uh, bombay a couple of months ago and he said do you know there's a very active startup community in jaipur and i think my jaw just fell because you know jaipur just doesn't you know fall in that radar the only thing that jaipur falls in the radar is unfortunately is the lit fest <laughs> so um, you know that you know those pieces are kind of missing and uh, uh, Yeah, I suppose yeah. Yeah, that's that's where things stand. <laughs> But just to shift again, I mean, uh, since you have watched uh, this community of technologists and and you know, uh, great engineers over the years, uh, what is what do you make of women in tech uh, in India or or the especially in the areas that that you curate? Mm. What are some of your top observations? Mm. Um. So I think uh, the observations are again from the very obvious to uh, you know what might not seem obvious. Um, uh, I think one of the most interesting things that I didn't realize myself uh, was uh, um, I think back in two thousand fourteen in July when I organized uh, the fifth elephant. At that time, my my daughter was about three months old and. Uh, I clearly remember Joydeep uh, Sen Sharma from Cubeball took a photograph of me on the stage um, with my daughter, and yeah. he posted it on Facebook and said, uh, you know, Zaina with her little cutie or some such thing, and uh, you know, to me it was like, yeah, it's a cute picture. And uh, over the years, I didn't realize that that visual was so powerful for me to then, you know, like three years down the line, there have been women who messaged me privately and said that, you know, that that picture actually motivates us to take our kid to work. and to take our kid to social spaces uh, uh, which are not ne- which are necessarily seen as like non traditional for kids um and i mean like now it i feel like uh, joydeep really does this of some credit uh, for uh, a cute picture that is now become an influential <laughs> picture so uh, uh so i mean that's that's a non obvious and mm-hmm. i think that you that we need to kind of have more of these visual representations because unfortunately uh You know, if one were to kind of look at, uh, uh, if one were to take borrow from say social psychology, is these representations that really shape our minds, and um, uh, you know the fact that stereotypes are built because they're constantly reinforced by you know by by visual, yeah. whether it's TV or photo, or whether it's TV or photographs or whatever. So um, I think that's one of the the non-obvious. Uh, the other uh, sort of non-obvious uh, uh, thing that I've kind of discovered is. You know, at the fifth elephant, uh, I we announced and said we'd like to have a diversity meetup, and the diversity meetup was not restricted just to women. Hmm. We said, you know, we just like to discuss diversity. So even if you're a man who's kind of sensitive to, um, to these issues, you should come and join the discussion. And it was interesting that only about four to six women showed up uh, in a conference which had like eight hundred, two thousand, one hundred people, and uh, one of them pointed out and said, you know. I told my colleagues I'm going for this diversity meetup, while there were other things happening in the conference as well. And the colleagues sort of made fun of her and said, "Yeah, you are a feminist, and therefore you're going for this." And when she narrated that to me, I was like, "Wow, this was a complete non-obvious." But now it makes sense to me that you know, within a conference, if I have to produce a space yeah. like this, um, there will have to be women who will have to battle their way in to say that yeah. I want to attend this not because I'm a feminist, but because I do. I mean, I just want to understand what's going on. So and I mean you don't have to be a feminist to be part of it. I don't believe I'm a feminist, even though people think I'm a feminist. Uh, so uh, so again, like that's another non-obvious that uh, unfortunately there is a fair amount of peer pressure that drives your behavior, and that 
you really have to be very i mean you have to have your own conviction in order in order to be able to say that no i will you know i will be part of a particular space even if that space is not uh, mainstream uh so i f- i feel i feel like that's also a challenge and uh, you know as much as it sounds very trivial it's a real challenge um or rather it's a very hard challenge uh, even if it sounds on the face of it that it's not uh, it's not so difficult uh the other thing that uh, i i i think that i've still not been able to fathom is uh, you know what drives um, uh women to come out and uh, and speak um uh i've had conferences where i've had 40% uh women as speakers and i believe i've done nothing to uh, to make that happen and i have had conferences where we've struggled to have women speakers and i still feel like that's an enigma and i do not know how to solve it i do know like worldwide there has been uh, a move saying that you know either speakers or organizations saying that we will not produce the conference because there is no there is no diversity there's no women speaker um and i have kind as a as a woman who's organizes conferences i have said that i cannot take that stand not because this is my bread and butter it's because yeah. i don't think we understand what the problem is and so to just say that we will we will take a we'll take an ideological stand because there's an ideology to either pander to or to believe in um i don't think that's the way to solve a problem um so that's a that's an enigma i don't know the other obvious uh, or rather the non obvious uh, for a lot of people but it's very obvious to me is that i think that you know the question of diversity also has to be extended to two genders that don't classify as either men or women um, yes. um so like the story that you ran for instance of uh, hana mohan and uh, i mean i have had the good fortune of knowing hana in uh, in in her lifetime when he was pratik um uh, now you know what would encourage uh, hana mohan to come out and participate in ajs uh, 4 when she is hana versus you know when he was pratik i mean he's been a speaker there now i wish there was a way for me to kind of like you know figure out how we could make hana happen at js for this year um and uh, i think that 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 is a completely unaddressed uh, um space and that's a that's then that 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 uh, you know that space of having um genders other than men and women to participate is extremely critical because uh, you know again borrowing from social theory just by focusing on diversity as women you are we are still reinforcing the heteronormative stereotype which is to say that the only natural relationship can be only between men and women and i do not believe that that's true in any case uh, because you can have very deep friendships among people of the same sex which don't necessarily have to classify as sexual relationships and uh, uh, you need that diversity i mean i i remember clearly when i was at juliacon boston last year and i was and that was happening at mit i had trans women or transgenders in the ladies bathroom and they would just talk to me for some reason they would just look in the mirror and say i don't see any person like me in this bathroom and i think that's a very significant statement again something that seems very trivial on the face of it but it's not so trivial because um you know the fact that would women feel comfortable in the in the presence of transgenders leave alone men i mean the fact that are the marginalized comfortable with others who are marginalized and i think that that again you know that comes down to the question of convictions of what you believe in versus what the community believes in or um, you know convictions of um, whether there are certain convictions that are far ahead of their times and i think that uh, you know for me i would really feel that we've created a diverse space if we were really to have trans persons either as attendees or speakers at and has the conferences um and i think that 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 deliberation is is completely missing um 
it's it's there um i know for instance there are companies like thoughtworks and accenture yeah. who do uh, have policies of uh, hiring trans persons but it's still very subtle there's not it's, i mean leave alone being talked about in media is not even something that's talked about in general but on the other hand you have enough avenues and uh, and channels for those organizations that are hiring women and that's kind of seen as noble but for me i think nobility really lies in being able to kind of create discomfort and that discomfort will happen when you have people of other genders who come together so i think that's the other diversity challenge that we have um and i feel that the last challenge of diversity which is again a non obvious is you know how do you bring people from different um, contexts and different educational backgrounds and professional backgrounds together um and uh, because i think the I, i don't know how much it's really known but i know that you know coming from um, uh, from a sociology background it's very clear that your own educational training uh gives you a certain kind of mindset yeah. it gives you its own prejudices and stereotypes now uh, let's take payments for instance i mean payments is a fairly interdisciplinary space uh, uh, space it's not just about bankers or about financiers it's also about policy makers it's about lawyers it's about advocates it's uh, it's about developers who wear an advocacy hat um, and you know by virtue of bringing all of these people together you're also creating a diverse space um uh, because then what you're doing is you're able to kind of like you know create a space where people from different contexts are talking to each other from different backgrounds are talking to each other and you know each one of them will kind of come in with their own biases or with their own uh, um, you know sets of information and i think that diversity also is something that's extremely required and critical if we were to uh, understand problems uh, uh, more holistically uh, so that that would be a that would be a sort of a diversity question which sort of pervades the 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 narrative which is currently are unfortunately only centered around uh, you know inclusion of women in in tech what i have noticed in my experience mm-hmm. to answer your enigma mm-hmm. <laughs> question i where i think a lot of uh, people are failing is you know it all comes down to workplaces yeah. like uh, or so called ecosystem at large so when we did those uh, stories some time back and i'm still mm-hmm. at it uh, we interviewed few dozen women mm-hmm. who actually came out and spoke mm. and most of them had this thing right i mean so so your point about why they are not coming out and talking in conferences or publics i think i according to me it all goes back to what kind of you know environment mm. is provided and I'm, i'm not saying as a sense of entitlement but overall yeah and i think here again there is this you know question of um, of i mean here again i think here unfortunately it's not a do nothing question it's a yeah. it's a structuring question yeah. and uh, i i do remember the time when you know uh, uh, you all brought out the stories about um, you know what was happening in the in the investor ecosystem and then uh, i think there were uh, you know there were stories that were coming up with uh, you know what was happening in tvs and others yeah. i kind of like uh, clearly remember this time when i said you know i'm very convinced that uh, diversity as a culture can only be permeated and practiced if the founders are yeah. have a sense of diversity and unfortunately there is this is complete this is top down there is no bottom up solution to this because uh, uh it has to come from leadership yeah, yeah. uh i believe that uh, smaller organizations are at an advantage to do this because they are still building their culture um, and uh, you know by doing this constant like you know sort of check in terms of you know how things um you know constant check like the other day i laughed at my own self when i think uh, i mean we had this incident where uh, 
we had these glucose meters in office and uh, our office manager uh, you know inserted the glucose meter for uh, i mean she actually kind of like you know um, uh, shot it in the arm of one of my male colleagues and i just happened to ask my male colleague said, huh, did you do it by yourself and he said well she did it for me and i was like so i was sexist okay <laughs> <laughs> and i mean i laughed at myself and at the same time i mean i looked at him and i said you should point this out to me if you think it's happening again in future um, and uh, uh, I, I believe that, uh, you know, uh, like I said, the smaller organizations are at a, a clear advantage because, yeah. um, you know, as founders, if you can kind of like um, uh, do this, uh, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, soul, uh, soul searching, if yeah. one were to call it, yeah. uh, and, uh, and at least kind of make these, uh, make these efforts. Uh, I've, um, so I believe that that's one. I think as uh, as women founders, we do have a unique uh, advantage. Uh, as women founders of smaller organizations, we do have a unique advantage, and um, uh, we do have a unique advantage in the sense that you know sometimes our own backgrounds and struggles can help, yeah. uh, but they can also be very disruptive because, uh, like I I clearly believe that you know the marginalized are not uh, are not necessarily like holier than thou because the marginalized will marginalize someone else. I mean I used to work in Kashmir for a long time uh, on conflict resolution and uh, you know I I clearly remember this point where I would be like you know I support the I support uh, those who are struggling for their own freedom because there is a clear uh, problem. But I do understand that tomorrow the oppressed will become oppressors, yeah. and I think that's not just a case of Kashmir; it's across the world. I mean, where conflicts have happened. But and um, so I mean, coming back to the point, uh, um, I've had the I've had uh, I've had the really good fortune of being mentored by uh, by somebody who I consider uh, has been a very strong influence in my life, and I think she doesn't consider herself. Someday I hope to write a blog post about her, um, and uh, you know, as someone who was. Who I could identify with as a as a person who came who was ambitious as ambitious as I was who came from a sort of a a, a middle class background who travelled in the local trains in Bombay who defied everything about her gender including travelling back in the train at twelve o'clock in the night from Churchgate to Borivli when others would be like are you serious like and I would look at her and say if she can do it I can do it as well and I think that 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 puts us in a in a situation of advantage to be able to influence some of the others like Who is she? um so she her name is iris madera and i hope if she listens to this uh, uh, she understands still that you know that she's had a tremendous influence on my life she's currently uh, i hope she's currently ceo of um, of her organization has gone through multiple uh, uh, name iterations but uh, i mean she was at madhvi desai consulting which then kind of morphed into various names but uh, i think uh, you know watching iris uh, as a 19 year old between 19 and 22 which i believe were my formative years watching her uh, you know do this kind of things like uh, you know just like you know make sure that meetings happen make sure that you know work is happening commitment uh, you know listening to words like synergy and then thinking wow what wonderful words and then you know when you actually go to like practice synergy you understand that it's so hard um, i think it's been a great source of influence for me and uh, i think what i've tried to do in my own way is to see you know how much if I could be influenced by her and could be uplifted in my life, is there an opportunity I could create for someone else around me? And uh, it's hard. I mean, it's uh, it's it's you know that's where the do nothing comes in because you do something and then you kind of like you know have to withdraw because at some point you have to be able to let uh, you know the marginalized, whether they are women, whether they are you know trans people, whether they are um, I don't know whether they are Africans for that matter. You can only kind of like go to a certain extent and then withdraw back because ultimately you have to be empowered from within and not from outside because then that's uh, that's that's not empowerment that's more of a hook 
so I think yeah, with smaller organizations, that's definitely the case. With larger organizations, we are unfortunately, um, you know, kind of trapped because uh, one is there are various levels of management, and uh, the I believe that the challenge in large organizations is this sort of um, you know misconception that. HR can solve your problems because HR is unfortunately the most disempowered division in most large large organizations and I'm saying this because of what I've seen personally as well as like you know through other conferences and forums I've discovered that you know unfortunately HR is the sort of the hiring and firing uh, division it's not a conflict resolution division uh, rather they would I mean their way of resolving conflict is either fire or get more people yeah. um, and to expect HR to solve your sexual harassment problems or to kind of look into complaints where um, you know somebody says that they're being stalked um, it's just impossible because uh, it's it's impossible only because HR is not in an organization uh, you know it doesn't have the enforcement powers to say that you know what if I decide to kind of like step up to the situation and I I believe that you know something has to be done um, they're not independent or autonomous to make those decisions. I mean, ultimately, they've been this controls by either like top management or by founders or whatnot. So, unfortunately, large organizations are at a tremendous disadvantage when it comes to diversity, and I don't think that that can be solved very easily. I mean, we can talk about it going on and on, but um, it's a it's a, it's a huge challenge to overcome because uh, it's just about you know uh, historical processes and uh, uh, you know how. Uh, some of these things are seen. I mean, I was quite surprised when someone came and talked to me about how, uh, you know, she was, uh, she was, she quit. I mean, she kind of like, she, comp- she, she decided to kind of move on from this organization. And then the day she kind of like, you know, completed her tenure and was ready to move on, she had a male colleague come and tell her that now I feel free to stop you. What? And her dilemma right now is, do I go back to the company and say I'm being stopped by this guy? Will they listen to me? Because I'm no longer an employee. And for me, that was a non-obvious situation. And I said, oh my God, like, how do you resolve for this? So I think the one possibility that does lie, and that's something I've you know, spoken to, uh, to people that, to, to organizations rather, who are in the space. I mean, one of them being Numa is, can we create a safe space for women to come out and speak about these problems? Because, um, you know, first of all, there is no space. And it has to be an anonymous space. Yeah. It can't just be a space of, Oh, women are coming and speaking about diversity. It really, it literally has to be like a counseling group, um, which is anonymous, where people can have this kind of conversation. And I still don't know if you know Slack is a good place to kind of like have this this network, or you know, my personal sense is only a physical setting. But yeah. then the problem is so huge that you know, how do you facilitate more and more of this? So, it's clearly a big problem. But, you know, I mean, more power to you, Zanab. I mean, really enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> Godspeed with all little and big battles that you are fighting. I, I, I do see, uh, like, uh, we could participate in at least one or two battles that you are, you know, fighting. So, so we'll have more fun going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Zanab. No Thank problem. you so much.